Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. Welcome back to the Gospel for Life. In the studio with me today is Jonathan and Phil. Um, still missing Josh. Rumor has it that he is going to come back here in a couple days, so we'll hopefully all be back together again. We have been working through a whole idea of what is the relationship between the government and the church and how, as churches, how as we as individuals should be responding to the authority and sphere of influence of the government and also the the role of the church. And today we're going to address a phrase that is common in the language of American culture. It's the idea of the separation between church and state, even in one of the platforms that was just passed um, by the political parties. It says that there's the paramount importance of maintaining the separation between church and state enshrined in our Constitution. So where does that phrase, separation of church and state, come from? The one that quote-unquote, is enshrined in our Constitution. Well, most, most listeners, I'm sure, probably know that that phrase, separation of church and state, is not in the Constitution. Uh, it actually comes from a letter that was written by Thomas Jefferson, uh, written to some Baptists in uh, Danbury, Connecticut. The, the, the Baptist tradition has, if there are any Baptist listeners, they'll give a hearty amen to this, that freedom of conscience has always been uh, at the, it's something that all Christians value and that really all Americans value, but it's particularly uh, important in the, in the Baptist tradition because they were often uh, suppressed by uh, governments and uh, didn't have the same freedom that, that other religious traditions enjoyed. Anyway, so Thomas Jefferson coined this phrase, um, separation of church and state. But what the Constitution does, and, and it's, not a, it's not an inaccurate term, but let's, let's do recognize it's not found in the Constitution. Uh, what the Constitution does say, the First Amendment says, uh, con- Congress shall make no law respecting uh, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. Or Well, I'm just going to stop right there because that was the religious part. There are two clauses there. There's the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. The United States of America will not have a, an established state church like they had in Europe, like, like, like most European nations still have, uh, have a state-supported church, uh, but it also guarantees the free exercise of religion. It's interesting that the phrase separation of church and state has become, quote, enshrined in the fact that if you really break down the the First Amendment, free exercise and establishment clause, and you go back to the historical setting in which those were written, 
So we know what they meant or didn't mean by those phrases because of what the practices of the individual states were and what was in the individual states' constitutions at the time of the writing of these phrases. And so when we talk about the separation of church and state, and sometimes people talk about a wall of separation, I believe was the phrase. That's um, the phrase Jefferson Jefferson used, used. What was understood was the wall was only one direction. And this is where most Americans are confused about the, the constitutional framework and the historical framework of the phrase. Establishment clause was a wall of separation from the state towards the church, that the state couldn't go into the affairs of the church. It was not a wall that kept the church from influencing the state. It was a one-directional wall. The, the founding fathers wanted influence of the church in the affairs of the country. Yeah. And so it's interesting that now the wall has been defined as a two-way wall, that there is never an opportunity for Christianity and the worldview of Christianity to be acceptable in the public square. That concept was so foreign that if you would have said that to any of the framers of the Constitution, they'd be like, I'm sorry, what are you talking what about? What are you talking that about? That is the most <laughs> ridiculous. And I think they would say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. Of course we want faith and Christianity and that worldview to permeate our society and our government institutions. I have a, I have a memory coming to mind of once when I, in a, in a sermon, I had touched on some issues that could be interpreted as political. Um, and I, I've always tried studiously to avoid, and now I'm going to get, get it into the next part of this conversation, and I'll punt to one of you guys, but I really believe that uh, partisan politics don't belong in the pulpit. And I've always mm-hmm. tried as a preacher not to, n- never to be a partisan. But there are, but there are moral issues. There are spiritual issues. Yeah. There, are, there are issues of, of God's truth, of biblical truth that are going to obviously they're going to touch on political issues. And, and on a, on a Sunday morning, uh, my message, I had, I had done that, and, and I, frankly, I don't even remember the particular issue that I was talking about. Um, but somebody challenged me about it afterwards and said, hey, Phil, what about the separation of church and state it, it, to imply that I had overstepped? Uh, and I was a little bit taken aback by that. I was, I was kind of stunned, but I said, I will, I will not ever put a, put a wall around the pulpit that, that somehow um, I can't speak to the moral and spiritual issues that are before our country right now. That's, that's absurd, mm-hmm. and that's not what the separation of church and state means. Mm-hmm. And that, that get, actually gets us into the second clause of the First Amendment, which is the free exercise clause. Right. The Congress mm-hmm. cannot prohibit the free exercise of religion. And so mm-hmm. this is why it is so wrong for, for any government entity to try to say what a church can or cannot say or how they may engage in their religious pursuits the only exceptions would be is if you promote a religious practice 
that deliberately violates the safety of and the life of another person. I mean, this is why we don't allow human sacrifices in our culture. There's a limit. None of the rights in the Constitution are absolute. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You don't have an absolute right to freedom of religion. You don't have an absolute right to freedom of speech. You don't have an absolute right for the right to bear arms. All rights have limitations. That's understood. And so we don't, we're not saying that government can't in some moments do something, but it's very limited in what they can or cannot do. Mm-hmm. It looked like Jonathan was jumping in, but I, I you know, I, I was just thinking about uh, government as, as a whole. I mean, I'd, I'd read a book a number of years back, and I can't even remember who authored it, but it was titled Blessed Are the Cynical. And uh, what, it, what it talks about is, you know, it's addressing the fact that, we, you know, morally or or just basically basic to human nature is is what we understand in in uh, calvinism is the is the depravity of the heart you know the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who could know it and so you know one of the reasons why we have the checks and balances that we do have in our government is because the founding fathers were cynical <laughs> they were cynical uh, of giving absolute power to any particular uh, entity, and so we have the three branches of government. We have the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. In fact, the only one who can hold could hold all of those offices as one was God Himself. Uh, mm-hmm. We read in in Isaiah thirty three verse twenty two, "The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our King. He will save us." If we think uh, government is going to save us, we're wrong. And uh, you know we need to divide up those things, <laughs> in, in in so there's a check and balance. You know, and this is one of the areas which we see in some ways are is going away. the The idea of a check and a balance uh, is is in some way going mm-hmm. away. They don't those you know those those um, branches are not necessarily as distinct as they were planned to be. I I just think that. Um, you know, when it comes to government, we as Christians, we need to be wise in those that we send to those positions because they have important responsibilities. And uh, we, need to, we need to understand um, where they're coming from. We need to be able to uh, address those things. As a pastor, I don't, you know, we don't put on the back table voting guides or we don't, uh, you know, I don't address those things from the pulpit. But as, as you said, I'll, I'll address moral and character issues because that's part of God's word. You know, it's like there's qualifications for overseers, for elders, mm-hmm. um, but those qualifications are qualifications for Christians. Yeah. And, uh, and this is what we bring out. These are, these are, these are qualities that would identify you as, a, as, as someone who loves the Lord no matter what walk of life you're in. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking for those kind of qualities, even in the leadership that we, we bring. And I just want to just circle back briefly and just say that when our Constitution was founded, it was when it was all complete and they're dealing with long-term, okay, what's going to happen? And the discussion basically comes about that Really, they created a document and a system and a structure that's only for a moral people. Right. That without an underlying morality, this system doesn't work, Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating, really, declaration to make. 
well, what was providing the underlying moral framework of which that came from? Well, it comes out of a Western Christian, broadly speaking. So I'm not advocating for a a Judeo-Christian ethic. Yes, because that's the Western model that was Mm -hmm. creating the moral framework for that day. Now, I'm, I agree wholeheartedly with Phil, what Phil said the other day. We weren't a Christian nation in the, in the and how people mean that, but we were Christian in the broad sense of mm-hmm. that was what was influencing us, Western, if you will. Right. We came yeah. out of a, a Judeo-Christian framework. So this is where when they talk about establishment clause and free exercise, they're naturally wanting that to continue to be the influence of mm-hmm. in our society. Right. And I think we just have to be careful today of of creating this wall of separation that's two-way where we're saying and we don't want any of that same type of moral fiber to to permeate our our government. Yeah, and there are forces in our society that want that want the church to be hermetically sealed off. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a, a very dangerous proposition. Well, you've been listening to the Gospel for Life. Hope you'll be able to join us tomorrow. 